Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. If you would take out your copy of God's Word with me and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. As we continue to look through the examples given to us by Christ, the examples of ministry, the examples of compassion, the examples of love. Part of the reason that I felt led to do this, I don't usually do expository preaching. I normally do topical preaching, meaning that on Sunday mornings, when I preach, I usually preach based on a certain topic that is laid on my heart. But in, in this case, we're looking at a more practical teaching as we see how Jesus met challenges, how Jesus ministered to others, how Jesus loved others in the name of His Father and gave us the example through which we're supposed to minister to others as well. And I want you to, to pay a little bit of attention to the, uh, the backgrounds. I know that they tend to be the last thing that people consider, but hands reaching out in mercy and in rescue is what we're called to do. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. What we are called to be is no less than the hands and feet of Christ. And we're called to do this not just every Sunday morning, but all the time. As growing Christians, one of the, the hallmarks excuse me, of growing Christian maturity is someone's willingness to be obedient to God through our ministry to the suffering, which is missions, and our ministry to the lost, which is evangelism. And there is a tension that exists between the hearts of many of our churches right now as to one versus the other. Part of the reason that uh, pre-millennial pre Christianity is kind of sneered upon by its detractors is that there, there, there's a tendency, and unfortunately it's a well-earned tendency, for those congregations to get caught up in a pendulum swing where the world is going to burn anyway, so why bother to help your fellow man? This is not what Christ called us to be. On the other hand, those that preach amillennialism have a tendency to, to not look to the kingdom that is coming and to think that the kingdom is already represented here because Jesus isn't a political king. He is a spiritual king. I think that we've all heard that mentioned somewhere before. So while we are here, we do the work without consequence to the person's soul. In other words, missions without evangelism. So there's, there's a battle of pendulum swings here. And believe me, the enemy likes it when we get caught up in pendulum swings. When we become radicalized, the enemy loves it because that means we are distracted from the mission. When we become so caught up in the sin du jour that we can't see the sin in our own lives because we spend far too much time pointing out the might in somebody else's, the speck of sawdust in somebody else's eye, well, there's a log in our own. We are called to continual repentance. We are called to continual renewal. We are called to constant growth. And what we're going to be focusing on today, through the image of Christ presented here in Luke's Gospel, 
is that we don't have a choice in our ministerial objectives. It's always decided, not by us and our comfort levels, but always by Him who called us, who redeemed us, who created us. So again, join with me please, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 11. And I don't think it's any coincidence, the reason that we're skipping uh, verses 1 through 10 is because I actually already covered it in a pre-Easter sermon that I gave called An Unlikely Ally, where we talked about the Roman centurion and, and the servant whom he loved. So it's missions month. We are, dis we, we are discerning or seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit concerning our own outreach activities. I don't think that this is a coincidence that this message just so happened to come at this point in time. But let's, let's dive into God's Word together. Verse 11, after he's leaving Capernaum and the ministry that he had undertaken there, Luke writes to us, Soon afterwards Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead men sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother, and they were all filled with awe and praised God, saying, A great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. This news, this good news, underline that in your copy of God's Word, this good news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Let's take a look at what, actually, what happens here that Luke is taking it for granted that you understand. First of all, as we know, this is a very complementarian society. This is a society where gender roles are fiercely enforced. Not only that, well, by that I mean that the males of a family are, are responsible for increasing the family's income from outside the home, whereas the, the, the wife or the women of the household are responsible for the management and the administration of the inside of the household. So it was a, it was a very much a, a, an assigned role society. Not only that, but this was Israel under Roman occupation, which means the whole idea of land reclamation, of land redemption, of how you supply for your family, of how entitled your family was to its property by which it sustained itself. All that was up for grabs. None of that mattered anymore. The Torah restrictions on how widows and, and uh, orphans were supplied was not necessarily enforced the way that it should have been under the old kingdom. So the mother was in deep mourning and was also in very deep doubt. She was facing utter destitution. She was facing utter oblivion. Many things about her life were now shocked to the core. But more than all of this, more than any of this, she had to contend with the fact that not only had her husband passed away, but she now had to bury her child. 
The scripture said that Jesus' heart went out to her. He had compassion for her. So he goes to her, knowing what's going to happen next. He shows her empathy. He stands with her in her moment of pain. He brings her comfort. He doesn't deny her the fact that she should have sorrow, but he comforts her. And not only does he comfort her, but he then supplies her need. Her need of the soul, which was to be healed of the hole that her son has just left. And her need physically for the fact that she needed to be provided for. So she goes. he goes up to the bier, B-I-E-R. That's a stretcher. That is an unclosed coffin. That is basically a cushion that you carry like a litter. They're transporting his body to the place where it will be prepared for interment. And for a rabbi of Jesus' caliber to approach a dead body is significant. You cannot touch a corpse in Judaism. You cannot touch anything deceased without being rendered ceremonially unclean, desecrating yourself before God. So for him to walk up to the open coffin... And to touch it, number one, was probably shocking to all of them. Because they knew who this Jesus was. He entered the city gate with a throng of his followers. Remember, he wasn't just with the twelve. He was with all of his disciples. The people that had been walking with him, listening to him, supporting him from Nazareth all the way down here. So he had a group of jubilant people around him that were now witnessing this funeral procession. And he halts their jubilation. He halts their excitement so that he can empathize with her, so he can show her compassion. And he touches the litter. Shocking enough in its own right, but then he whispers, I tell you, get up. And he heals and he restores and he resurrects her son. When we talk about outreach and Christian perspective, what we're talking about is demonstrating God's love while also proclaiming God's love. Jesus demonstrated God's love for her by not only supplying her physical needs, but also supplying the needs of her soul, the longing of her heart, her grief, her shock, her sorrow. Standing with her in her hour of greatest need. And as he accomplished both of these things, the believers around him saw and understood. Remember, they didn't just say, look at this miracle worker, look at this healer. There is a prophet gifted by God in our very midst who is now healing the sick, who is raising the dead, who is offering people hope. And they took that good news and they spread it throughout this area of Galilee. They were not afraid of awkward conversations. They were not afraid that their message would fall on deaf ears. They had belief because of the fact that they witnessed the love of God in their midst. And they excited them. It set their souls ablaze. And they went out and they proclaimed that God is here. And a city suddenly turned its eyes upon Jesus. The identifier of a maturing growing Christian 
of spiritual maturation is not only the ability, but the desire to be a bringer of comfort in times of suffering. And then to be someone willing and able and committed, obedient to delivering a testimony of what Christ has done for us. This is what we mean by outreach. Outreach is part of our, growing, our discipleship pathway here. Our mission, as, we, as we've mentioned several times, is to know Christ and to make Christ known. One has to be accomplished before the other word, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. But how do we grow? First, we start off in a worship service by loving God and understanding how we love God, and that we love God above all things. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might, and you proclaim that love through worship. And then as we grow in this spirit of worship, we also grow in maturity by understanding more about God by connecting to Him through His Word. But that's only a first grade Christian. The Sunday morning worship hour is kindergarten. In order to grow and develop, you have to, take you have to move from the milk to the meat. You have to move from the Similac to the baby food to the meat. I was trying to look for another metaphor and it didn't come to me quickly enough. But anyway, you have to delve into the Word of God to such a capacity that you can then share the Word of God. That's how we move into first grade. We move into second grade, if you will, by loving others in the name of Christ, by turning away from focusing on ourselves, turning away from the wall that we could build up around our hearts and seeing the other person for who they are, a person who is made in the image of God, who is worthy of our consideration, who is a person, not an object, not a job description, but someone who is a potential brother or sister in Christ, someone who God himself considers of eternal significance and divine worth and a bearer of the image of God. So we minister to that person in their times of suffering in this fallen world. That's what we are called to do as a church. But not only are we called to do that, but we're also called to proclaim the gospel to them because above every other need, above all physical needs, is the need for redemption, the need for salvation, the need to avoid the judgment of God, which is hell. If you care about someone, you don't just care about them in the here and now, you care about their hereafter. And part of the reason that this discipleship pathway is the way that it is, is because a lot of times the heart of another person, the heart of someone who is not a Christian, is still made of stone and has to be softened. Their heels have to be undone. They have to see love in action, not judgment, not condemnation. They have to understand that it is God who judges. But once that love is forecast, once that love is made known, then the field is fertile for the word of truth. Forgiveness is available. It's something that we all need. All of us, each and every person who has ever lived, save only one. But it's not automatic. And you've heard me go on and on and on about this, so I'll spare you the rest of the spiel. But it's something that we're all called to do. And right now we're going to talk about, as well as tonight, we're going to talk about the last two. We're going to talk about the, the, the mature Christian end of our mission, which is to make 
Christ known. And that's what we're talking about also today, how to do that in a godly way. As an example of Christ, the widow was suffering from hopelessness, from a combination of grief, of shock, and from the fear of utter destitution. But as we saw, Christ, through His example, ended her suffering, and the gospel was proclaimed without intimidation. The gospel was proclaimed without reservation and without fear. And the message spread throughout this whole city. So how do we make Christ known? First, we have to know Christ ourselves. A person who is not a Christian cannot be a member of a Baptist church. Nor can a person who is not a Christian have a place in the ministry of Christ. Why do I say that? Especially at a time when we consider ourselves low on volunteers. This is the reason. It's in the Bible. In Romans 8, starting with verse 5, Paul writes to us, Those who live according to the flesh, a.k.a. those who are not saved, have their minds set on what the flesh desires, not upon what God desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption, which is your gift upon your confession of sins and reception of Christ as your Savior and Lord, those people, their minds are on what the Spirit desires. The mind is governed by the flesh. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. If you haven't already put this in your notes, this single verse, if nothing else, the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. If the intentions of your heart, as Jesus proclaimed in his Sermon on the Mount, if the intentions of your heart are not set upon Christ and Christ alone, then every fruit that comes out of your activity will be poisoned. This is who we are in the realm of a flesh. The flesh cannot please God. That's what I get for speaking without my glasses on. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. It is not possible. Church membership is not the same thing as salvation. It's about time that we proclaimed it as such. Just because you are someone who is on the rolls of a particular church does not mean that you have submitted to the Lord as both the Lord and Savior, which is a requirement unto salvation. So by trying to pad the books, and this, this is not our church necessarily as much as it is a, a situation that came about in most uh, conversion-based churches like the Baptist faith back in the time of the 50s and throughout uh, the 20th century from that point, you wanted numbers. You didn't care about spiritual growth so much as you wanted numbers. You wanted to see those pews filled. You wanted to measure your success based on how much money is taken up in the offering plate. You didn't care what they did Monday through Friday as long as their butts were in the pews on Sunday. It's about time that we proclaim the fact that church membership does not equate to salvation. Salvation requires that not only do you admit that you don't deserve to be in the church in the first place because you stand a sinner, it, it requires that you admit before a holy God that you do not, not deserve salvation. You are a sinner. But thanks to, the, thanks to the spark ignited by the Holy Spirit, thanks to the Word of God being preached, 
We have the capability of recognizing our faults, of recognizing our flaws, of recognizing our rebellion before God, and going to Him and pleading for His mercy, understanding this, Whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Savior and Lord. It can be no other way. Repentance and confession. Salvation is characterized by humility, obedience, peace, and hope. These are things that cannot be found in a carnal mindset. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. I'm sorry, I know that that's been proclaimed for a long time. We can backslide a little bit. We can uh, trip up here and there. But if you do not exhibit exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, chances are good that you do not have possession of the Spirit which is a requirement in order to be not only a church member, but a minister within it. The unrepentant live in pride, not love. And as we just heard, they cannot please God. Now, someone within the body of believers who acts as a member of the local church, remember, as a Baptist church, everybody who comes into our membership role gets ownership of the church. Everybody has a voice when it comes to the business of the church. That's what being a Baptist means. We are congregational in our polity. So someone without the influence of the Holy Spirit within the body of believers forms a cancer in the body of Christ. They damage through the fruit that inevitably comes out of a poisoned heart. They damage the testimony of the individual person, and they also damage the testimony of the church in the community. How many of us know cases where someone refuses to go to church because someone who was unrepentant in their ways hurt them? But nevertheless, because they wore the badge of Christ on their chest because they proclaimed their church membership, if that's a Christian, I want nothing to do with it. How many people have gone to the grave not knowing Christ because they didn't see the difference that Christ can make? Unrepentant people in the body of believers limit the church's ability to reach the lost because of this very fact. Unless your church has a proper testimony, it will not have an impact in your community. And it also dilutes the lost that may be on your membership rolls into thinking that they are saved. There was a time not too long ago in the Baptist faith when we assigned mentors to new members. It's a situation I'd like to bring back up. Families who took in other families, who showed them hospitality, who welcomed them in and also nurtured their spiritual growth to ensure that they had that kind of godly influence so that when they left the door of the church house, They didn't stand under the the temptations of the world alone. It's something that we need to reconsider. When we talk about knowing Christ, we also have to understand that this is not an an intellectual knowledge. It's not good enough to know about Christ. It's not good enough to know Him as a teacher, as a historic figure, and so on. You have to know Him personally. When you pray, you have to know without a shadow of a doubt that someone on the other end is listening. You have to have a relationship speaking to him through prayer, allowing him to speak to you through the word of God. This is a transformative relationship, one that bears the old has passed away, the new has come. Knowledge of Christ, the salvific knowledge of Christ means that sin is eradicated from your very nature. 
that you emerge in Christ-likeness ever-growing. We might sometimes sin, but that's the exception, not the rule. And the primary characteristic of a, a life lived in this capacity is love. John, the apostle of love, the mystic, in his letter to the church writes to us that anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister who doesn't love them with an agape, self-sacrificial love, is still in the darkness. They are still lost no matter what they say. If their testimony is not backed up by their actions, by the fruit of their lives, then they are lost. Anyone who loves the brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them that makes them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. They don't know their own condition. What's really sad about this fact is that, again, talking about the sin du jour, the, te the, the pendulum swing of Christian thought, which ends up meaning that we think more about this one triggering event of our day without taking eyes on ourselves, ends up meaning that we are more likely in today's time to condemn someone who is pro-abortion, to condemn someone who is a homosexual, to condemn someone who is a part of whatever's in the newspaper this day. We're more likely to shout and condemn with that person with one voice than we are the person who, who in the church is trying to destroy the body of Christ by spreading lies about their fellow member. You cannot... Minister in a place effectively if you're not all Christian. We all have to be held to account. We all have to be put under a state of conviction when we do wrong. We all have, but that's the responsibility of the Holy Spirit naturally. But also the brothers and sisters. Are you your brother's keeper? Yes! You are responsible to each other! A relationship with Christ puts to death hatred for others. It puts to death seeing others as objects and job functions. It puts to death a preoccupation for the self at the expense of others. A relationship with Christ sustains us through the peace that passes all understanding, through the wisdom and guidance of the Holy Spirit through which you have been sealed. He sustains us through the joy that is without condition. The difference between happiness and joy is that happiness requires happenstance. Something from the outside of you has to make you happy to make you happy. But joy is from within through the power of the Holy Spirit. Far more valuable, yet we never seek it. We're also sustained because we know that the promises of God's mercy are not in vain. Precious promises of God. We did a whole sermon series on that last year. And I hope that you still have your notes from it because they sustain you every day. The ministry of a non-Christian, as we've learned through the writings of Paul, uh, their attitudes and motives are always against God. They, it is impossible for them to do anything that pleases God because of the fruit of their heart. They're eventually discovered by those that the Holy Spirit places in the body of believers with the gift of discernment for this precise reason. Their, their influence results in a poison in the ministry engagement of the local church, and they deter the mission of the local church because the local church becomes fixated on themselves through their example. Here's a question for anybody that's a part of a local church. As a member of the church, are you here to do service for your king or are you here thinking that the king is going to serve you? A Christian never seeks to be served, but seeks to serve. 
We are called to service, each and every one of us. And that's an attitude adjustment that we all need. It's not a matter of, of putting new programs in place. You could put programs to death in a local congregation. But it's an attitude within the culture of the church itself that must be changed. The heart of the body of believers must be changed to one of outside mindset, to one of service. Sacrificial love, agape. The words of Jesus through the, the, the pen of the Apostle John tell us, the new commandment that I give you, and this is the hallmark of how those outside the church recognize what a real church is. The new commandment that I give you, that you love one another as I love you, as Jesus loves you, you are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are in Christ, that you are his disciples, if you love one another. How much did Jesus love you? I want you to think about that for a second. This congregation, this sanctuary, thankfully, is, is lined with several reminders of what God's love looks like. We have crosses all over the place. We also have the Word of God. How much did Christ love you? Because He expects you to have that exact same kind of love for your brothers and sisters. This is how they know that Christ is real. They see how well you love each other. So knowing Christ, again, is evidence of salvation. There used to be that old gag from the pulpit that if someone took you to trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? This is the evidence of salvation. Do we see others as objects or as job descriptions or as people made in His image? Do we think of others as beneath us or do we habitually and reflexively esteem them as greater than ourselves as we are commanded to do in Scripture? Do we merely tolerate our brothers and sisters in Christ or do we know and do we let them know that they are loved? Do we see those that we minister alongside, do we see them as merely co-workers or do we acknowledge them as family? This is the hallmark of of a, of a saved life. The wisdom of Solomon comes to us. A quick-tempered person does foolish things, and the one who devises evil schemes is hated. A church who is run by the unrepentant gains a reputation accordingly. That's why it's so important that we know Christ for ourselves before we ever seek to make Christ known to others because we will dim His image. Let others see Jesus in you. How good is your reflection? If you're the only Bible that some people will ever read, how good is your translation? See Christ in others. That's how we minister. That's how we do the work of ministry, by esteeming others as greater by ourselves, by seeing Christ, by seeing the image of God in the person that we're called to serve. The fallen nature inspires us to build a wall around our hearts, a wall of self-deception. We don't value people unless they're useful to us. This again is the fallen nature, understand me. This is also the trap that we in Christians can fall into if we slip to temptation, if we go back to being a person of instinct instead of a person of the Spirit. The value of people 
in the fallen state is, use, is, is in how useful they are to me. Um, only my experiences and my feelings matter as a result because that person's an object, not actually a person. Only me, my self-worth matters. How good I feel about myself, that's the only thing that matters in a fallen state. And that person in such a state that builds the wall about themselves, they can only see that wall, meaning that they are blind to the image of God in others. They are blind to the suffering of others. They are blind to ministerial opportunities because they're too afraid. Look, ministry is risk. We are in the business of risk. Every time you hand food to a poor person, that's a risk. Every time that you put money in the offering plate, that's a risk. Every time that you go up to someone and, tells them about, and tell them about a Christ who will save them from their misery, that's a risk. Ministry is all about risk. Here's an idea. Get used to it. We are, in this culture, in the United States, we have had it so good for so long that we forget that you are promised that you will be persecuted. The capital C church has lived under persecution for over 2,000 years. Why do we think we're exempt? Nevertheless, it's what we're called to do. Because who takes responsibility for your ministry? Who takes responsibility for your ability to do things? Who takes responsibility for your safety? Ultimately, it's not you. It's the God you serve. Ministering in a fallen nature, living in a fallen nature, Results in discrimination because only myself and my self-worth matter. Marginalization because how I good about, feel about myself is the only thing that ultimately matters to me. Unmerited senses of supremacy come from the fallen nature. The victim mentality conversely comes from the fallen nature. Oh, what a poor person am I who cannot escape this thing on my own. Conflict comes from the fallen nature, both personal and corporate. Radicalization is a trap of the enemy that comes from the fallen nature as well. Be on your guard, writes Paul. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. The regenerate nature sees everyone as a person with eternal significance and with divine worth. Please put this down in your notes. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what sins they're guilty of, no matter what their frame of mind is right now, they are a person of, of, of eternal significance and divine love that you have, divine worth, excuse me, that you have been called to love. They're a potential brother or sister in Christ. The regenerate nature invites people to a sense of peace and a community together. We call it the church. It provides an atmosphere where ministry can take place because without the Holy Spirit, we can't work together. We drive each other nuts. We need His love and we need His forgiveness. The regenerate nature understands the necessity of God's grace. It's not good enough that you make yourself feel good by cooking some, for somebody, by, uh, by ministering to somebody's physical needs. But you have to understand through the regenerate nature that just as you were in danger of the fires of hell, so is that person. And you must take the gospel of repentance to them. That's not a question. That's a commandment of God. Be always ready to give an account of the hope that is within you. Do so with gentleness and with love. But do it. We also recognize the signs of backsliding within each other. And we can hold on to each other, counsel each other, come alongside each other, love each other, 
and help each other through those struggles of temptation. That's why the church exists. Paul continues in Colossians, whatever you do, mark this down in your Bibles. Mark this down the flyleaf of your Bible. If not, highlight this verse, the set of verses. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, working as working for who? The Lord, the person standing in front of you in the grocery store, the person that you're handing a sandwich during a ministry item, the person that you're handing a piece of clothing during a giveaway, the person that you're putting a snack bag together for. You might be doing that for an individual that is not Christ, but we are called to do it as if we were doing it for Christ. Not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Our privilege, as well as our calling, is to be the ones who help end suffering in somebody's life. To esteem others as greater than ourselves. To see everyone as potential brothers and sisters. To share the burdens as we work together and to meet the needs of our neighbors. Let them see Christ and His love in you. Love everyone you see, no matter their background, no matter their history, no matter their problems, no matter the indebt of their sin, because there for the grace of God go, I, I might as well be that person. I might as well be the drug addict. I might as well be the drunkard. I might as well be the person caught in all kinds of corruption, because if I had been tempted in the same way, chances are that would be me too. We all need to know that, for none are righteous, no, not so literally there, but for the grace of God, go I. Which is why we are called to love them just as Jesus loved them, for which he gave his life. Now remember, these are the four ministries of every local church. Note that two of them are always in a state of creative tension with each other. Nevertheless, all four of them must take place. It's a tension that keeps things in balance, not a tension that results in a winner and a loser. A tension that holds things in balance and in place. When we talk about outreach, the ones that we're talking about more than the other two are missions and evangelism. They have to happen in tandem. They have to go together. It is not one versus the other. It is always both. The trap of radicalism, as I've mentioned earlier, is that we stop seeing ourselves as the hands and feet of Christ. And we drift to one side or we drift to the other side and we forget part of what we're called to do. We are called to both minister to the suffering in those in destitution. We are also called to be the ambassadors of reconciliation, the ministry to the lost, which is evangelism. Whatever is kind, to whoever is kind in terms of missions, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. But he also writes, remember this, in fact, put this down in your notes too, whoever oppresses the poor shows what? Shows what? So who ignores the poor? Who speaks ill against the repressed? Oh, we can't have them come into the church. What if they look around and see something they want to take? What if they map things out? What if they steal? It's part of the risk that we're called to do. Whoever has contempt for the poor has contempt for God. Serve them. That's your mission. That's the Word of God. Matthew 25, the righteous will answer him. 
Remember, this is part of the way that Jesus himself during the great judgment determines who are his and who are not by the way they show the fruit of the Holy Spirit through the ministry that they do. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? When did we ever see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we ever see you as a stranger and invite you in? When did we ever see you needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you because you're the king? When did we ever see you in any of these capacities? But what does Jesus say to the believers as the king of kings and lord of lords? He says the king will reply, truly I say unto you, who, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you've done it for who? Me. This is the hallmark of someone who bears salvation in their life. Not to work to be saved, but to work because you have been saved. The regenerate nature will change your will to rescue those who stand in danger, to tend to the physical needs of the poor, to show the appropriate charity, not a toxic level of charity, but a discerned, wise charity to those who need it. To show empathy with the suffering. God honors those who honor His image. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? It's an identifier of salvation. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and with truth. Be a doer of the word and not hearers only. Wake up, church. We've got work to do. For those of you who know Christ, your challenge is to dig deep in the word of God and mature, to grow in grace and wisdom just as he did. For those of you who have been matured, and again, this doesn't matter how many years you've been in church. It matters how much of the church has been in your years. Each and every one of us should be at least here no less than twice per week. Be it Sunday school, be it Sunday night, be it Wednesday night, you should be exposed to the Word of God more than the baby food of the morning worship hour. You can't grow up on baby food alone. And I realize that we have constraints in our work week, but that's why we do things online. And incidentally, if they're a blessing to you, like and share it. That's an easy way to make Christ known. Let other people know that you've been blessed by God. Know Christ so that when you're called to do ministry, which all of us are, when the other person sees you, they will see a reflection of Him who saved you. A clear, visible, decisive, life-changing reflection. It is the highest honor, I believe, of anyone who enters the portal of heaven once they hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I pray that we do hear that. I also pray that when those gates are open, that through the life that you've lived and the bravery you've exhibited as being obedient to Christ, someone in those portals that's already there runs up to you, throws their arms around your neck, and says, thank you for being the minister. Thank you for being the messenger of the word of God.
your bravery, your courage, your obedience to him is the reason I'm here. What a profound blessing to have somebody that's a brother or sister come up to you to thank you because you did something that made the difference in that person's eternity. And all God's people said. Heavenly Father, as we draw to conclusion the service of the word and enter into our time of invitation, I ask that you would convict us of those times that we did not heed the call of the needy, that we likewise did not heed the call of the dying, the people who stand in the way of judgment and wrath, when all we had to do was tell them that you were there to save. How many times, how many opportunities, how many divine appointments have gone by where you've called us to stand before someone that would become a child of the king, and yet we couldn't muster up the courage to even so much as invite them to church. Lord, I pray that you would instill within us a fire drive and a determination to grow ourselves so that we may grow your kingdom. That as you continue to transform us into the image of your son, people will see that image. People will be convicted and people will be drawn to you before it is everlastingly too late. Forgive us, we pray. Give us courage and strength for the road ahead. Grant us your vision for all things and expel everything that would detract us from that vision. And for those in the sound of my voice, Lord, if there are any prayer needs that have been burdening the people in front of me, if there have been any challenges to being that minister that you've called us to be, if there are any fears that detract us from being the person that you'd have us to be, to be the leader that you'd have us to be, the messenger that you'd have us to be, whatever the cause or concern. More importantly, Lord, if there's any who don't know you in a personal way, let them come to your altar just now before it is everlastingly too late to declare you as their Savior and Lord. Trouble their hearts. Trouble all of our hearts. Lead us to your table now to find the peace that we need to move forward. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.